Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome back to Deep State Radio. This is Rosa Brooks, and I am standing in this week as host for David Rothkopf, who is currently circling the globe on one of the Deep State surveillance planes. Uh, Also, we wanted to let our (laughs) listeners know (laughs) that we are expecting an imminent coup against the deep state by the Grinch. And as a result of the anticipated Grinch coup, uh, all of the deep state radio crew, we will be in, we will be retreating to our underground bunkers next week. And there will be no deep state radio episodes the week of December 25th while we're all underground. We will, however, be resuming our regular deep state radio podcast schedule uh, in the new year on January 3rd, 2018. Uh, with me today in our tiny little podcast studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK is the Atlantic's Julia Yaffe. Greetings. We are joined, as usual, by Corey Shockey from sunny California, but not <laughs> for a whole lot longer. Well, Corey for a whole lot longer, but not sunny California for a whole lot longer. Uh, Corey, as of February 1st, I believe, is going to be moving to London, where they do not have what? hot tubs. Yes. Nor (laughs) sunshine, nor baseball. Or sunshine or baseball. This is inexplicable. Um, But Corey is going to be taking up the mantle of Deputy Director General at the International Institute for Strategic Studies and will also be a visiting professor uh, at King's College in the War Studies program. And finally, not last but not least, we are delighted to have Kim Goddess joining our Deep State Radio team. Uh, Kim is joining us from a secret Deep State Radio podcast studio in Beirut. Uh, she's a senior visiting fellow with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a journalist with the BBC. Um, she's a Beiruti when she's in D.C., which is much of the time. But when she's in Beirut, I guess she's a Washingtonian there. And she's also a self-described food expert, which means that I'm going to start with you because all I can think <laughs> about right now is food because I have not had lunch. Kim, what, what, are, what are you eating? What are you eating in Beirut right now? Well, I had to miss a fabulous dinner uh, to join you because uh, we're recording this when it's nighttime ah, in Beirut. But uh, I'm sorry to be uh, to be on a podcast with three fabulous um, ladies. You know, Beirut is getting ready for for Christmas. The whole of the country is, uh, you know, getting ready to shut down to be ready for the invasion of Lebanese expatriates who flock to the country at the end of the year to uh, partake in the festivities. The you know, party invitations have been sent out. The Christmas trees have been put up. I was always struck when I was in Washington um, that it didn't look as festive as Beirut um, during during the holidays. So I'm quite pleased to be spending the Christmas period here in in um, in, in Beirut. But it does mean a lot of traffic jams because it's huh. a small country. But you're the making it not you're great. making it sound very very appealing. We get the Grinch and and it you is. get expat Lebanese people and beautiful decorations. Is it too late to buy and tickets to go? Fabulous. 
and fabulous parties. They'd probably be incredibly expensive by now because really everything is overbooked. You really have several hundred thousand people uh, coming to Beirut, coming to Lebanon to celebrate with their with their families. And I can tell you one thing, partying in Beirut is beyond anything you've you've seen. We know how to party and we definitely <laughs> know how uh, to eat. We're thinking about lunch when we're having breakfast, we're planning our dinner when we're having lunch and we're you know, plotting dinner when we're um, when we're having coffee in the afternoon. That that sounds like my kind of town. <laughs> I think I want to spend next Christmas in Beirut, since I spend most of my time day to day planning it's, my it's, my next it's, meal. Um, it's Anthony. It's celebrity chef Anthony Bourdain's favorite town. Ah, so I I think that tells you something. Yeah. Well, I do know that throughout the Middle East, people talk about Lebanese food as as being the the pinnacle of regional cuisine. So I, I'm kind of jealous. Um, but I thought I'd ask you, Kim, um, to talk a little bit about what people are talking about in Beirut other than getting ready for Christmas. Um, in D.C., needless to say, we're completely obsessed with Donald Trump and all we ever talk about is Trump and who will be indicted next and what crazy thing has he done today. Um, are people in Beirut equally fixated on this issue uh, or do they have other and better things on their mind right now, other than Christmas? <laughs> um, so they're definitely very interested in what's happening in the United States. They're very definitely fixated on Donald Trump. I think people in the Middle East are fascinated by the American president. And of course, people follow everything that happens in the U.S. because it has a direct impact on, on Lebanon, on the region. You know, you saw with Donald Trump's um, decision on, on Jerusalem, you know, the immediate ripples across the Middle East. So people do follow very closely. They're very up to date. Um, they follow perhaps not necessarily down to the smallest details the way we would do as, you know, policy nerds in, in Washington, but they definitely keep track. Uh, but they're also concerned about the wider impact on the region. You know, what does it mean when it comes to Iran's, you know, uh, power in the region? What does it mean when it comes to Saudi Arabia and the relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and the impact that that's going to have on Lebanon? You know, we just had our own big crises with the Lebanese prime minister being made to resign in the most oddest of Yes, that in, was completely bizarre. In, in Riyadh. Um, you know, the United States played a role there trying to walk the Saudis back from the brink that they had walked themselves to, to some extent. So actually, can you take um, a step back, Kim, for, for those of our listeners who don't mm. follow this as closely? Uh, this was a truly weird episode, but remind everybody what happened. And how so did it end? How did it end? How, was, how <laughs> well, will it end? Ended yet, and I'm not sure we know all the details, but... Um, in, uh, at the beginning of, of November, the Lebanese Prime Minister Saad Hariri uh, announced his sudden resignation, not from Lebanon, not from you know, the government house, but from Riyadh, the capital of Saudi Arabia. Now, he is also a Saudi citizen because his family has long-standing ties to the kingdom. His father, uh, the late Rafiq Hariri, was Prime Minister of Lebanon and made his fortune in Saudi Arabia and was assassinated in 2005. Saad Hariri's taken on that mantle, and he's in a very, he, he is, was, still is, we don't know for how long, in an uneasy, um, you know, coalition in government with the president, uh, Michel Aoun, who's a Christian, who's close to Hezbollah, which also has ministers in the government. Hezbollah is listed as a, you know, a terrorist organization by the State Department, very close to Iran, a proxy of Iran, 
um, very powerful in the country. So it's this sort of very uneasy alliance between these 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 three poles of, of power, if you want, within the within the cabinet. And I think that for the Saudis, Saad Hariri's efforts at trying to keep Lebanon stable in the midst of you know chaos around it by working through this uneasy coalition, uneasy cooperation with a group like Hezbollah was simply too much for them. It was becoming too comfortable. They're very keen on pushing back against Iran. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the best way to read this is that they decided that they needed to make clear that there was a red line and that Saad Hariri was getting too cozy um, with Iran's friends in in Lebanon. But it didn't quite work out the way they wanted because Lebanon is, is, um, you know, essential, I think, for stability or what's left of it in the region, essential as a model of coexistence, the only one remaining in the region. Uh, But also it's a very fragile balance. And if Mm -hmm. you mess with it, um, you can undo it very quickly with pretty devastating consequences, not just for the country, but also for the 1.5 million Syrian refugees who live here in Lebanon and who would, you know, probably be heading to Europe as soon as they see that the country is collapsing. So, so what is going to happen next? Do you think what's what's the, if not the next chapter, at least the next page? Well, um, it's it's still a little bit unclear how much longer Saad Hariri can maintain this this uneasy, you know, coalition because he then eventually returned from Saudi Arabia with some intervention by the French who invited him to Paris so he could leave without anyone he could leave Riyadh without anyone losing face. And then eventually returned to Lebanon and announced that his sort of conditions for returning to government had been met by his coalition partners. And one of those key conditions is that Lebanon should be kept separate from what's happening in the rest of the Middle East, which is, you know, frankly impossible because Mm -hmm. Hezbollah is fighting across the border in Syria, um, you know, by the side of of, uh, President Assad's uh, forces. So... It's sort of hiding behind your finger, but it's it's something that I think most people want to believe in at the moment because they can't quite deal with the consequences of a total collapse. And I think the Saudis have also realized that their gamble, um, trying to force the Lebanese prime minister to resign in the hope that it would provoke the Lebanese to stand up to Hezbollah, didn't quite pay off and they need to rethink that approach and that perhaps Lebanon is not the place to bring their confrontation with Iran to next. So I want to circle back in a little bit to the impact on all of this of the U.S.'s uh, uh, somewhat incoherent approach to to politics and power in the Middle East. But but for I wanted to, before we do that, um, talk about something you mentioned only very, very briefly, Kim, um, which was the reaction in the Middle East and elsewhere to President Trump's decision to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Uh, and particularly to talk a little bit about something that's going on as we're recording this podcast, uh, which is that the UN Security Council is debating a resolution uh, to condemn the decision by the U.S. to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And one of the things that's really interesting here is that uh, our two closest permanent Security Council member allies, France and Britain, uh, appear to be poised to vote in support of this resolution condemning the U.S. decision. The U.S., of course, is extremely likely to veto that resolution, so it's not going to go anywhere uh, uh, in, a, in a formal sense. But, Julia, what, what does this tell us about how the world is viewing 
President Trump's uh, novel approach to Middle East peace. (laughs) (laughs) That is an extremely diplomatic way of putting it. Um, I think I want to hear what Kim has to say about this, but it seems to me like this is very much in line with Trump's campaign promises that he was going to be the best for Israel, that he, you know, it also links back to what he and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and his then national security advisor, Michael Flynn, were doing during the transition, which was lobbying various countries like Russia to veto a, a resolution put forward by the Obama administration on settlements, um, basically trying to get back to a place where the U.S. is often the one, the kind of lone bulwark defending Israel and Israel's interests in the U.N. against, you know, a kind of growing chorus of condemnation there. Uh, but it is, it is telling that – I mean, it's not I, – I don't find it particularly surprising that European powers are critical of this approach. They're, mm-hmm. they're much more to the left of – historically have been to the left of, of uh, the U.S. on Israel. So that's not exactly surprising, um, nor is it surprising that the Trump administration has taken this kind of um, – battering ram approach <laughs> but, but it, it seems like it's a it's a pretty public break when when you not only are issuing statements saying well we didn't think that was such a hot idea uh, we wouldn't have done that we wish you hadn't done it but when you're actually voting in favor of a resolution condemning a decision by one of your supposedly closest allies because I I think that's but that that's probably in addition to um, you know, where European capitals stand on Israel and the settlements and the territories. Um, I think this is also in some ways um, a veiled attack or condemnation of the Trump presidency Mm -hmm. and its very approach to foreign policy and its um, understanding of foreign policy. Yeah. So, Corey, what what is your take on this? I mean, I, I was wondering what, if anything, this portends for our future ability to use the UN Security Council as a venue for furthering U.S. global interests. Exactly, Rosa. I mean, not only did we have to use our veto because the other 14 members of the UN Security Council were unanimous in opposition to us, but the American ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, after issuing the veto, threatened allies with this, Quote, what we witnessed here today in the Security Council is an insult. It won't be forgotten. So it suggests the degree of (laughs) difficulty um, that the Trump administration's policies and their behavior in the execution of those policies are bringing on the United States. You know, my strongest reaction to the U.S. To the president's speech today, issuing the national security strategy, was that we're condemning Russia and China as revisionist powers, but there is no right. country that is more doing revisionist more than us. To, yeah, to change the existing rules and norms in the international order than the United States under President Trump, and I think what we are seeing in the Middle East is an illustration of that. You know, they pretend that the recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel uh, is, you know, good for Christians in the region and good for Jews in the region and good for religious and ethnic minorities. And I think it's the exact reverse. 
that and the demonstration mm -hmm. of how much damage it's doing to to relationships in the Middle East and relations of the United States with countries and religious groups and ethnic groups in the Middle East is the fact that nobody who is the head of a Christian denomination in the Middle East wants to meet with the vice president when he's there, that they are standing in solidarity with their Muslim uh, neighbors and in opposition to what we have done. See, we are bringing peace to the Middle East. That that that, that was the genius of the whole thing, Corey. <laughs> well, you're right, Rosa. Kim, is it there yet? Are you noticing peace Kim, breaking is it out there all yet? over? Did it arrive? Well, um, no, peace has not arrived. Peace has not arrived. I can confirm uh, peace has has not arrived in in the Middle East, and neither has has unity, unfortunately. Except, of course, Damn on the it. issue of of Jerusalem. <laughs> Um, yes, of course, Christians and Muslim Palestinians will, you know, stand um, together because, you know, in the Arab world, Jerusalem still, you know, speaks to people's uh, emotions, nostalgia about a past that is lost, about, uh, you know, defeat in the face of Israel, you know, wars after wars of, of, of defeat against Israel, something that people haven't still haven't quite gotten over and that has continued to shape the politics and the geopolitics of this region. I just want to say two things, um, Rosa. Uh, a lot of people around me in, in Beirut and, and people I follow from the Arab world on Twitter commented that in the end, what Donald Trump did with this announcement was take the mask off of the United States, mm -hmm. which had been pretending that it was a fair arbiter and a fair mediator, but never was. And now he just showed the reality. So, so that was one very common reaction around me. So people were, were in a way surprised that he actually did it and in many other ways said, well, okay, well, now, you know, now the mask, the mask has fallen off and we just know what we're, what we're dealing with. The other thing that I would say is that I, what I'm curious about is to what extent um, the Jerusalem issue is now going to play into the Iran-Saudi mm -hmm. rivalry. Because, you know, it, Jerusalem and, and, and the question of Palestine has also traditionally been used and co-opted by many leaders in the Arab world, if not all leaders in the Arab world, including, um, so I would say in the Middle East, because I want to include Iran in there, um, back into, you know, if you go back into the 50s, from Hassan al-Banna, the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, to the first Fidayeen al-Islam in, in, in Iran with Nawab Safavi, um, who inspired Khomeini in many ways, to, um, you know, Khomeini himself, to Saddam Hussein, um, to Gamal Abdel Nasser, everybody wanted to uh, carry that that torch of defenders of Palestine. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. it's not played out very well for the Palestinians themselves. They always find themselves alone. Very popular uh, and yet end. somehow completely screwed. And yet somehow very, um, you know, very unsuccessful for the Palestinians who continue to live in, in terrible conditions under occupation in, um, in the West Bank. Um, but what I want to, what I'm curious about is how this is going to play out for the Iranians and the Saudis. The Saudis issued a very strong statement of condemnation after Donald Trump made that decision on, on Jerusalem, but that we haven't seen much more from them uh, because they need 
uh, their relationship with the United States to continue to be strong because they are very focused on countering Iran, Mm -hmm. uh, not so much on defending the Palestinians. They're very focused on countering Iran in Iraq, in hopefully for them, uh, they Mm -hmm. think in Lebanon and of course in Yemen. And the Iranians would like to run with the issues. And we saw uh, their allies in Lebanon, Hezbollah, declare that all resistance Um, all resistance units, all defenders of Palestine should unite. But we actually haven't seen that much more from them. I thought that the reaction, even from Iran and even from Hezbollah, was quite muted. And I'll tell you why. Maybe because they're nervous. (laughs) Well, because um, they're very busy in Syria. They're very Mm -hmm. busy in Iraq. But also they realize that they've lost a lot when it comes to popularity in the Arab world, precisely because of their role in Syria, fighting alongside a minority Alawite regime against a majority Sunni. You know, we forget today when we look at the region that in 2008, the three most popular leaders in the Arab world were Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, the Iranian president Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, and Bashar al-Assad. I haven't seen any Mm. very recent polls, but I can guarantee you those three do not make it to the top anymore. And so Hezbollah is not quite sure that it can take on the banner of Defender of the Palestinians at this stage and rally the Arab world behind it. Julia, what's your take on this? So I have a I actually have a couple of questions for Kim. Uh, First being um, when when I was seeing news coming that there would be this uh, recognition by the Trump administration of Jerusalem as Israel's capital, I was like, great, this is the Trump's evangelical base. pushing for something to trigger a holy war that then triggers Armageddon and the second coming. <laughs> so, what we're all waiting for. No, right? Because this is why, I mean, I as um, as a Jew, I'm deeply skeptical of, of this group and their um, their role in, in, in this whole issue. But I guess the, this is a long-winded way of, of asking what happened. Like, it, did it... I was expecting there to be a where's third the holy intifada. War? Yeah, where's the holy war? The, where's the intifada? Why didn't it become? Not that I want it. <laughs> I not that I want it to be. Say, say how disappointing for the evangelicals. I yeah. know. Well, I mean, I guess, uh, I mean, you know, God forbid there's another war. I think we've had enough wars in this region. Um, but I, I think the various players in the region are still trying to figure out how to move forward. We had the OIC summit um in um in in Turkey just last week we had you know strong statement from from the Arab League I think everyone is 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 busy with a lot of the uh, conflicts that are playing out in in the region Syria Iraq Yemen um Lebanon to some extent you know cold cold war um and and I think that right now no one is quite sure how to move forward mm-hmm. on the issue mm-hmm. Of, of, of Palestine and Jerusalem. And I really do think that what dominates today is the Saudi-Iran rivalry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But, but like, but the street, you know, where is the Arab street? There haven't been really uh, mass protests about this. I mean, this. I wonder where, how where, much... Where did it go? The, Kim, is that the, the partly a product street. of demographic shifts, of it's a very young population? And is this issue not as resonant for younger people in the Arab world as it was a generation ago? No, but you have to remember that the the Arab street, first of all, is not one homogeneous 
thing. Um, and also the Arab region has been in the midst of its own, um, you know, every country has been in the grip of its own turmoil, chaos, instability. And so I think people's bandwidth is, is also limited. You know, you're not going to see people in Syria take to the streets for Jerusalem right, today because right. they're they other on things the run. To worry about. They're, they're, they're being, you know, um, bombed. They're being uh, starved to, to, to death. Egypt has its own issues with, um, you know, poverty on the rise, uh, repression, uh, you know, demographic explosion and so on. You know, in Yemen, no one's going to demonstrate in Yemen. They're, you know, being bombed to smithereens as well there. So uh, the reaction has been limited, part, including because because of that and because um, <clears throat> the, um, the the bandwidth, I think people's bandwidth is just, is just limited. And so the only demonstrations that we saw uh, really of, of note were the ones that Hezbollah um, organized here in Lebanon, and of course uh, Hamas and, and the Palestinians themselves, who you know we shouldn't forget are 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 the key uh, the, the key people who are concerned with this because it affects their their life and their and their lives and their future. But like I said, I thought Hezbollah's you know reaction was 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 muted. Um, you know we had two days of protest um, last week, and then uh, or sorry, two, ten days ago, but nothing the la- last Friday. So last week, I, I, I'm thinking about Iran. I'm thinking about well, what 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 is what is worrying the Iranians right now? And and last week, uh, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley asserted to journalists that the United States has uh, evidence that she called indisputable uh, that the Iranians are supporting Yemeni Houthi rebels. Uh, in their fight against uh, against the Yemeni government, and that that evidence consisted of a missile uh, fired last month um, at Saudi Arabia, at Saudi Arabia uh, that was determined to have been manufactured in Iran, and and this, of course, immediately led to a. Uh, a, a factual dispute about well, number one, was the missile really Iranian? Number two, even if it was, what if anything does that mean? Um, because, as we know, you you toss a bunch of weapons into the world, and they tend to slosh around, and sometimes they end up in surprising places. In fact, um, a recent report uh, highlighted the number of Saudi and U.S. weaponry that found their ways into with, found its way into the hands of ISIS itself. So clearly, Saudis and and the U.S. were not directly supporting ISIS and yet they were using U.S. weaponry. Uh, so so many U.S. intelligence experts have, have argued that this is neither here nor there. The fact that the, fact that the Yemeni rebels may be using some Iranian-made uh, weaponry uh, doesn't tell us much of anything. But what was, what was interesting, of course, was that it, from the perspective of many observers, it looked like what Nikki Haley was doing was trying to begin to pave the way to a sort of renewed bellicosity towards Iran. We were – Trump was was reportedly quite irritated that he couldn't come up with a good enough excuse to get out of the Iranian nuclear deal uh, and that this was being used to – you know, as a, as a paving stone to get us towards uh, some excuse to have a big fight with Iran. And, and, and Corey, I wonder, number one, um, are you – what do you think is happening? Do you think that Iran is directly supporting the Yemeni rebels? Is Nikki Haley right, number one, 
um, or are you dubious about this? And number two, whether she's right or wrong, what do you think that the the broader agenda uh, the Trump administration has for making a fuss about this at this time? Yeah, and question 2A is, is this, you know, Colin Powell, Colin Powell at the UN redux? Right. You know, it, one's a vial of white dust and the other is, you know, right. it might as well have Iranian stickers, made in Iran stickers. And, and question 2B. That, that was Joe Zarif's uh, tweet. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> <right. laughs> the Iranian foreign minister tweeted yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I've seen this film before. Yeah, and question 2B would be how much, how much do the Iranians, uh, how are the Iranians interpreting Nikki Haley's comments and how much is that now affecting either muting or or exaggerating their reactions to other issues in the region? Corey, that was like seven different questions for you. (laughs) I do think Nikki Haley is right that the Iranians are arming the Houthi in Yemen. And I do think um, it's an extraordinary escalation of the regional power struggle between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, I don't think Iran was the cause of the civil war breaking out in Yemen, but I think the way Saudi Arabia in the last year has, has escalated the fighting without having a strategy for mm-hmm. a positive end game. That is, what does Yemen look like when this is over? What's the Saudi Arabia is losing hearts and minds in Yemen, and we're losing hearts and minds in Yemen right along with them by signing up for their strategy without pushing them to come up with what's your humanitarian approach to this problem, right? The the Saudis are blockading, they're preventing mm-hmm. humanitarian assistance from going into a country that has a massive outbreak of cholera and is and where people are starving to death. So we're failing to do our job, which is even if we support our allies' war aims, we have to have a positive political endgame. And we don't and they don't. So we are handing Iran influence in Yemen and beyond by the way we are playing our part of this. Um, that said, uh, the Iranians are not only uh, also uh, facilitating violence, plague, and starvation in in Yemen. They too don't have a positive political outcome they're seeking. So the this is so tragic for the people of Yemen because everybody's piling in and making it worse. So why I think. Corey, it's probably fair to say that the average American uh, is completely unaware, A, that there is a conflict in Yemen, B, what players are involved, and C, that the U.S. has been uh, supporting the Saudis through uh, through logistical support, through intelligence sharing, and so forth. Um, why and, – and it's pretty clear that even many Republicans in Congress don't think it is such a good idea that we are doing this. Um, why does the Trump administration think that it is good for us to be supporting the Saudis given all the issues that you've just raised, that, that all it is doing <laughs> seems to be destroying Yemen, uh, devastating the lives of Yemenis and pissing off more and more people? I think there are two reasons for it. The first is that 
they are one central element of Trump administration Middle East strategy is to is to recalibrate relations with our traditional allies in the region, uh, which they believe, in my judgment, rightly, the Obama administration did damage to in order to lock down the Iranian nuclear agreement. And uh, in the case of the damage done to regional relationships, it was partly because the Trump, ad- excuse me, the Obama administration uh, wanted a nuclear deal with Iran more than they wanted anything else. Uh, so they looked the other way at uh, Iranian terrorism, Iranian destabilization of regional governments, Iranian human rights violations in their own country, Iranian mischief interdicting shipping in the Straits of Hormuz. Um, but the second reason regional allies were upset was that the way the Obama administration went about it, that is, they didn't tell them what they were doing, and and so the Trump administration is trying to reset the clock on that. Um, and so they have uh, they have declined to press American values of human rights being universal, political liberty being everybody's birthright, uh, on Egypt, on Saudi, uh, on our traditional allies in the region. And they have also uh, opened the spigot even further than the Obama administration did in handing over Mm -hmm. arms and intelligence for countering Iran. Uh, so, so one was resetting regional relationships, and the second is that the Trump administration really believes that Iran needs to be shoved back inside the box and its influence reduced. And on that, I no think no matter what the price, right. no matter what the price. Well, not no matter question what mark. The price, I mean, but I don't think no matter what the price, because otherwise they would have uh, withdrawn from the. Uh, JPCOA, JCPOA, I always get the acronym wrong, the Iranian <laughs> Nuclear Agreement. I think you got it right. right. Instead of <laughs> just rolls uh, off the and tongue. said there's no alternative to military confrontation, um, that instead they tried to finesse this, uh, you know, we're not going to certify that it's in our national interest and that they're in compliance, but we're going to leave it in place unless Congress. So so um, here's a question for all of you, maybe, maybe starting with Julia. Um we constantly eye to criticize the Trump administration and criticize, in fact, criticize the Obama administration before it for not having a coherent policy in the Middle East. Um, and you know, we're we're are the 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 kind of demented uh, result of the enemy of our enemy is our friend thinking has got us supporting practically everybody and nobody at the same time. Um, that being said, is it even possible? for the U.S. to have a coherent a coherent approach to the Middle East that would be consistent both with our interests and with our principles? And if so, what on earth would that look like? Or is that just forget it? It's too complicated at this point. Julia, coherent, principled Middle East policy, question mark? Can I just just describe <laughs> my face right now? <laughs> She's twitching. <laughs> 
I don't know. I mean, I was just, you know, I was reading through the national security strategy before coming here. And it was, again, it was more of the same. It was like, this is a total departure by going, it, you know, it was a 360 degree mm-hmm. turn. And um, the, the Russian expression that comes to mind when you read this is, we're for everything good and against everything bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, and, and also, I don't even know, I mean, this, to me, this gets back to the kind of the bigger question underlying all of this in the Trump years, which is how do you even – what does it mean to have a policy in um, in this administration when the president can at any point and does at random points tweet, you know, when he watches Fox and Friends or he's sitting on the toilet or whatever and just the thought occurs to him and he tweets something that is completely at odds with whatever – you know, his National Security Council has mm-hmm. spelled out. But at least in theory, I mean, if we if we had a different president mm-hmm. um, and we had a different administration altogether, if there was some <laughs> hypothetical magic perfect U.S. administration full of wise, uh, thoughtful swamis, swamis um, is it even possible to have a coherent U.S. approach to the Middle East at this point? Or is this just there is nothing that we could do that wouldn't be incoherent and or we might as well just get out of Dodge because we, we can't do anything good here? There's nothing good we can do. Well, I think that I, I disagree with the last, the last premise um, because whenever we get out and say, you know, uh, we're damned if we do, damned if we don't, or damned if we intervene, or damned if we don't intervene, the Russians inevitably mm-hmm, mm-hmm. take our place. And I wanted to ask, um, I'm totally dodging here, but I wanted to ask Kim about this, <laughs> about about what's happening, you know, th- with the spreading Russian influence in the Middle East and, and Putin's kind of um, rock and roll tour last uh, last week across the Middle East, what, what that looked like. And is it really, you know, from Washington, it looks like they're uh, eating our lunch or just taking over traditional American um, places of American interest in the Middle East. How do people in the Middle East perceive it? But, but before we before we do that, no, I'm da- no, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm going to start picking on you, Julia. Um, but but I, I want to actually spend much of our next episode talking about uh, talking about that issue and the the new national yeah. security strategy. Um, so before, let me not quite let Kim and Corey off the hook on my question before we move on to other to other topics. Corey and or Kim, can either of you offer a coherent? U.S. strategy for the Middle East that that our hypothetical, imaginary, perfect government would adopt in thirty seconds. In thirty seconds, you can have forty-five seconds. seconds. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think any anyone can give you the actual full uh, coherent strategy for the Middle East. But I would just say, see if um, Kim can't, then I definitely can. Okay, if a yeah. few things. Well, I, I could do it maybe in an hour. <laughs> if, if I Tune were, in if next I were, week. Uh, pre- okay, pretentious, pretentious <laughs> enough to pretend that. Um, you know, I, I can devise that policy. But I would just say a few things. Um, it's very difficult to align America's interests and values anywhere, mm-hmm. not just mm-hmm. in, in the Middle East. And, and I think um, that, that conflict, that tension between the two has always been there and will will continue to be there, even if this administration is more on the interest side and less on the value uh, side, as you know, the Secretary of State said himself. The other issue is that the problem with American policy, I think, towards the Middle East is that, in particular, um, is that you know it runs in four-year cycles. 
because of you know their presidential terms. Or and 10 this minute region cycles, is as, all about, as it turns out. Sure, currently, yeah, in 30 seconds. <laughs> um, and, and right now, you need to think, or, or sorry, and in the Middle East, you need to think long-term strategic and sustain that approach over time once you've decided what it is that you're trying to achieve. But you can't change your mind or change tack every four, four years. Um, and then the, the last thing I would say is that um, you know the personal beliefs and preferences and and worldviews of members of the administration uh, play a big role, and I think we underestimate that sometimes. It's not just that the Middle East is it's is complex; is that the way that American policy is is made um, is you know it has all these different parts to it that don't always align perfectly, and where people are often at odds, you know, when one person thinks that, you know, the United States should absolutely sort of um, support the, the the rebels in Syria, for example, to help them bring down President Assad. But you have other members of the administration who are solely focused on what that would mean on the Christian minority um, of Syria and ignore, for example, that the majority is Sunni. You know, those tensions are are real and and play out and have consequences and have impact on um, in in the region. So we're almost out of time for this episode, and in the next episode, we are going to turn to some of the broader implications of U.S. missteps in the Middle East and who fills the vacuum um, and looking at the new national security strategy in more detail. But but before we close out this episode, uh, Corey, any, any final thoughts on what the U.S. should be doing differently in the Middle East? Corey has all the answers. We hope. We <laughs> hope. I do have thoughts on what they should be doing differently. Uh, we should be um, offering conditional support where our interests and the interests of our friends in the region overlap. We should be unflinching about what we believe to be true about what creates social cohesion and social peace. That's a hard argument for the United States to engage right now, given how divided we are. But we do actually know the answer to those questions. And uh, the kinds of problems that are fostering violence in the Middle East are failures of governance more than anything else. And so assisting with better governance ought to be the central plank of our engagement with the region. And that's where we are continually failing. And I agree with Kim that we fail in different ways every four years. Mm. But but the fundamental We're failure sort of like Tolstoy's unhappy is... family, except uh, on a nationwide <laughs> scale. <laughs> exactly right, Rosa. You are exactly right. <laughs> um, well, on that note, I think it's time to end this episode of Deep State Radio. Once again, we're sorry that we didn't have David Rothkopf with us, uh, but we, we hope and we trust. We miss you, David. We miss him. We hope and trust he's pursuing Who? the interests of the deep state <laughs> on an airplane as we speak. And he will be back uh, not next week when we'll be taking a little holiday break uh, in our bunkers, but the week after that in January. However, there will be one more podcast coming up in just a couple of days. So we hope that you'll come back to Deep State Radio for that. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Julia. Thank you, Corey. Yay. Great to be here. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with 
Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.